0: I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. I remember the conversation like it was yesterday. I was sitting in my moral theology classroom in the art building at the University of Dallas. Yes, moral theology was taught in the art building. It was basically find a classroom, have a class kind of setup with Dr. Mark Lowry, one of the leading moral theologian professors at the University of Dallas. And he was talking about how Catholics often face large conversations, and understandably so, around bioethical issues. And I I use the word issues very loosely because it's much more than just an issue in the sense of there's a problem and we need to call somebody to solve it. Although in the case of bioethical problems, there is a group of people that you can call. And in the world of bioethical issues, there is an entire group of people who have dedicated their lives and spend their time digging into the nitty gritty, for lack of a better way to put it. The National Catholic Bioethics Center is filled with just those people, people who have dedicated their lives to the study of bioethical issues from the lens of Catholic theology and the scientific data to support the way that these questions uh, can be answered. And I'm I'm using a, a very loose description here because it is a very particular area of study. The NCBC is filled with people who have dedicated their lives to doing this, so much so that they have a hotline that you can call 24 hours a day, and people do to ask bioethical questions, oftentimes when they're facing matters of life and death, oftentimes when they're facing matters of care, again, especially surrounding end of life. The really unique thing about the National Catholic Bioethics Center is that The men and women who work there, the theologians, the doctors, the philosophers, the scientists who have committed their lives to digging into these hard questions are answering the questions for real people who have real questions and are facing real moments of sometimes crisis, trying to ponder everything from should I get this vaccine to how do I care for this particular loved one to what do I do if I am facing infertility and everything in between. I may answer these questions with pastoral attention and care by giving somebody a, as full an explanation as they can surrounding the Catholic Church's teaching to help people get to a place of understanding and acceptance so that they can make a decision in a well informed manner. Today, we are chatting with one of those bioethicists, Dr. John D. Camillo. He gives us a really beautiful explanation of both the concept of bioethical challenges that people face, answering some hot-button phrases and terms, but also gives insight into why this work is so important and necessary, and how this work plays out both in the center and in the lives of people who call and ask these questions. So as we dig into these, these bioethical conundrums, it's important to keep in mind that the men and women who work at this center are doing so as a job, but also within the context of ministry within the context of helping people discern as they discover these answers to questions that are not easy to dig into. This, of course, is part of our entire Ave Explore series, digging into faith and science. What's the relationship between faith and science? And this week, we are really tackling some of these bioethical issues. This conversation today with Dr. DiCamillo is part of our larger conversation around bioethics. We will have another episode later this week with Dr. John Burheny about vaccines, specifically the COVID-19 vaccine. So we hope that you subscribe to this podcast, give it a rating and a review so that more folks can find it. And we'd love it if you go to AveMariaPress.com to find all of our Ave Explorers faith and science content there. But for now, we hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. John DiCamillo. Dr. DiCamillo, thanks so much for joining us on Ave Explorers.
1: My pleasure to be here, Katie.
0: So tell us a little bit about who you are. I know you're a full-time staff ethicist at the National Catholic Bioethics Center but where are you? What are you doing there? And maybe even a little bit about why you wanted to study bioethics.
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, the interest in bioethics actually goes back. I was an undergrad a science major, pre med as well. And I was actually at that time as an undergrad exploring my faith again for the first time, <laughs> you know, really seriously in a secular university context as a hard sciences major. Actually, it was behavioral science in particular. So I was especially pushed in the direction of basically, what does it even mean to be a human person and what is freedom? Do we even have freedom? Those fundamental questions because when you're dealing with all sorts of behavioral sciences, uh, neuroscience, et cetera, there's a tendency toward a scientific reductionism that basically just says, hey, you're just you know a bunch of uh, cells and you just do what you're programmed to do and <laughs> you know we can study all these things. So I was particularly drawn to understand better that question of human freedom. Mm -hmm. and the question of human sexuality, because that's also something that frequently comes up in human and other animal behavior courses. So those two pieces together drove my interest in bioethics specifically. I started getting into John Paul II and Theology of the Body, of course, as the first way in. And then from there, before I went to med school, it was, you know, my senior year and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to start applying to med schools. But I thought, you know, before I kind of put my head down, you know, into the grind of med school, I should really take some time and focus a little bit on the fundamental underlying questions of ethics, because I know once I get into med school, I'm not going to be able to think about this stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. So I found this program in bioethics, graduate program in Rome, and as I had also been a double major in Italian, it was a nice fit. So <laughs> so I did the bioethics program and never went back, basically. So,
0: <laughs> I mean, just, that works. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. So I went deeper into the bioethics, I just fell in love with it, and that's kind of what brought me to the uh, National Catholic Bioethics Center, which is where I am now been there about 10 years and it's been quite a ride. It's been amazing. And I am still loving the bioethics every day.
0: So you said something there, you're studying for med school, which is a very, at the same time, it's like when a kid is little and they say, I want to be a doctor, you know, it's hard to sometimes pull a kid off that track, especially if they get so far as applying to, and then maybe even going to med school. Do you think that's a question that a lot of future doctors are asking, you know, like I should probably learn about human freedom and the human person. Is that as a person who's drawn to medical (laughs) studies asking that question, or were you kind of the oddball in that scenario? Like, did you find a lot of your classmates digging into that question or was that a unique to your faith, getting back into your faith thing?
1: I think it was, I mean, everybody, I think, asks those questions, you know, necessarily. The question is just how prominently do they place that question with respect to everything else they're trying to do. And I don't think too many people were posing it to that serious of a level. I mean, I had a few friends who were doing some philosophy uh, and bioethics courses with me, actually, of other faiths as well. So, I mean, I think there is a general interest that anyone who's going into medicine kind of has where it's like, hey, you know, the area we're studying and applying our science to is ultimately the human person. So it's kind of like you want to know how he ticks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But no, I mean, I think it was something unique that was drawing me deeper like it was to me it was it became a point of i have to resolve these questions before i go any further because it impacts the way that you understand all of science and all of healthcare when you have a question about who or what is the human person and you get into these questions about well what are the right courses of treatment what's the role of autonomy you know all those sorts of things tend to then sort of flow out of your vision or understanding of who is the human person and what's the right way to approach him Many people get caught up in, I think, and understandably so, the intensity of the science Mm. and just, you know, wanting to master the science, you know, you're getting through your courses, even just as an undergrad, the hard science courses. Of course, when you get to med school, it's even more intense. (laughs) But I think there's definitely a need out there. I think there's an interest out there. I've actually, through NCBC now, I've for several years been giving presentations to the Catholic Medical Association's boot camp. For medical students and residents. So, that has actually given me the opportunity to encounter lots of students who are in growing numbers, really <laughs> deeply concerned with these questions about their faith and about integrating that vision of the human person into the practice of medicine.
0: We chatted with Todd Warner for the podcast, and I know he's done a little bit of that work in his educating of medical students. As you know, are you seeing a patient or are you seeing a collection of problems? And how do those two things? Fit together to come to not just a course of treatment, but even in advising that individual, you know, how do they feel about this particular diagnosis or this particular medication, or the hot button issue right now, this particular vaccine. It shows on your bio that you have a lot of interest in the moral analysis of Catholic healthcare care affiliations and health insurance plans. And that got me thinking, you know, I know the health insurance plan we have. I know the premium we have. I know what it costs to have a baby down right. to the dollar. Because when that <laughs> bill came in the mail, it was like, there's no way oh, this yeah. was $30,000. And then you're like, I didn't have to pay that for the record. But it was just like, this seems a lot. So I, that's kind of my first big question as we get a little more into the bioethics. What does that mean to analyze the Catholic healthcare affiliations and of health insurance plans? Like, Is there yeah. an ideal Catholic healthcare plan? Is there an ideal way to operate within the market as a Catholic?
1: Well, there are a lot of complex questions there, you know, as uh, there are issues of the big picture, let's say, of how insurance works and the role of, for example, various approaches to paying for health care, which could include things like health sharing programs, which have been growing, particularly since the, the Patient Protection of Affordable Care Act, et cetera, which give a lot of opportunities for particularly faith-based groups to share costs as opposed to using traditional insurance. There's groups like the CMF Curo and others out there now solidarity health share is a Catholic one, for example. But I mean, I don't want to go into those particular questions here. What I would say is, since you're asking about what the work that I do specifically, my work is tied to benefits design, in essence, whether it's a health sharing, whether it's traditional insurance, whatever it is. The question is, there are certain kinds of procedures that we as Catholics, particularly as Catholic employers, should not be paying for if you're paying for insurance for your employees. And if you're going to get insurance for yourself, obviously, You know, you would want insurance not to cover these things generally if you can avoid it. There are other things you want it to cover, (laughs) you know, to be a sound reflection of giving witness to the values that we have, you know, so you might want to, for example, be sure that if you have a Catholic health plan, it is covering things like treatments that would involve procreative efforts to achieve conception through means that don't involve in vitro fertilization and so forth so I mean you might be involved with what's called restorative reproductive medicine and different kinds of hormonal interventions to help couples achieve pregnancy naturally um, you want to make sure that sort of stuff would be covered in some way on the other hand of course you want to make sure you're not paying for contraception you're not paying for in vitro fertilization you know the list of surgical sterilizations etc mm-hmm. etc cetera, et cetera. I mean most people know particularly if you're a Catholic employer you know the basics of what the church teaches on those fundamental points. But the nuances come in and the reason that NCBC is involved with that kind of work is that there can be very subtle distinctions between what works and what doesn't. Just for example, with the reproductive technologies question, you know, many health plans more for economic reasons will have historically tended to say, we're not going to cover anything that has to do with reproductive technology because it's all just expensive and it's all really, for the most part, tied to IVF Mm -hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of expenses that we're just not going to cover period. But that might end up, unfortunately, in the case of Catholic employees on that plan, that might end up preventing them from getting just basic hormonal treatments mm-hmm. to increase the likelihood of conception Actually, like I was mentioning before, because those are just classified as reproductive endocrinology issues that we're just not covering period as a whole category. And so you'd want to make sure that there's a distinction made in the plan for when you're covering that particular drug in the particular circumstance. So we get into looking at the diagnosis codes, the treatment codes, the billing codes, the things you would have seen, hopefully, at least on mm-hmm. your bill, they don't always put those codes. Even I asked, bill. I
0: was curious yeah. enough oh, to ask. Okay.
1: <laughs> there you go. So we actually get into looking at those and we'll say, well, what was the diagnosis code? What's the procedure code? You know, if it's something like also, for example, uh, typical issues with just women's health, gynecological issues, I mean, classic. Questions of double effect in bioethics would pertain to things like using contraceptive drugs, but for directly therapeutic purposes. Mm. So if you're dealing with, for example, can you use the pill to treat something like excessive menstrual bleeding, for example? And the short answer is you could in certain circumstances. Obviously, if there are better alternatives out there, those should be sought first you know, let's just say in particular case, it could sometimes happen, that may just be your best option. And there's no better alternative available in your case. You could, in fact, use that as a hormonal intervention to help address the symptoms associated with that condition. And it wouldn't be using it as a contraceptive. So in moral terms, it's not classified as a contraceptive act. It's a directly therapeutic action that has an indirect outcome or side effect of effectively making you temporarily infertile, temporarily sterile. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that can be legitimate under the principle of double effect is the point. And we, in the work that I do, would need to be able to see that in your diagnosis codes. Like, okay, yes, there's actually a diagnosis for a medical condition, and this was provided in association with that medical condition. But if we just see, you know, encounter for contraception, and then you see the contraceptive pill, okay, well, there's no other reason this is being prescribed according to the codes and that should be denied. Mm -hmm. So we would provide that kind of guidance to Catholic employers or others who are putting together health benefits to try to make sure that the plan is covering for things that can be legitimately covered, like that example of double effect and contraceptives, and is not covering things, obviously, that would be in conflict with the Catholic Church's moral teachings.
0: That's a great explanation. I mean, it I think on the outset, I'm kind of like, you know, I I knew the church cared about this kind of stuff. It's good to know that there's someone doing In the Weed's work. Talk to me a little bit more about the principle of double effect. I mean, that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot in moral theology conversations and bioethical conversations. What is it? And then a common Catholic sitting in the pews might hear that maybe once in their lifetime from a a homily, (laughs) if even.
1: Yeah, right. (laughs) But,
0: you know, might like see it in an article floating around on Facebook or might hear it in this podcast and want to know a little bit more. Give me like the 10,000 foot view of the principle of double effect.
1: Sure. So a principle of double effect is basically, it's a way of understanding the fact that sometimes we do good things that have bad outcomes that we don't intend, and that can be okay. (laughs) You know, it's a sort of short way of putting it. I mean, there are obviously very technical criteria that you have to go through to make sure that it works in a particular situation. But the idea is you're doing an action and you are doing a good action but that action has some foreseen bad outcomes. And can I do this action anyway, knowing that it's going to have some bad outcomes? And the short answer is yes, you can. If what you're doing is good, if you foresee and intend a good effect coming from it, you don't intend the bad outcomes and you have a sufficiently serious reason to go ahead and do that action, which means you're going to have to take into account well, how bad is that bad effect, Mm -hmm. you know, and how Mm -hmm. good is the good thing I'm trying to accomplish and weighing those considerations among other things. We call that a proportionate reason or a sufficient reason, which always has to be considered in order for it to work. So to give simple examples, since we're talking about 10,000 foot view, right? The average person basic example is just taking any medication that has side effects. And, you know, it's kind of a simple thing I like to tell people, right? If you take Sudafed, okay, maybe it makes you drowsy and the drowsiness is a bad effect. That's something you foresee is going to happen but you don't take Sudafed to be drowsy. You take Sudafed to address, you know, the symptoms that you're experiencing, which are unpleasant. And so that's your direct good purpose. It accomplishes a direct good effect, which you intend. You do not intend to become drowsy, although you foresee it's probably going to happen, especially if taken in the past. And so, you know, for sure it's going to happen. And then the question that remains as always is, do you have a sufficiently serious reason? And that will depend on your circumstances, right? So, if you know you actually get really drowsy when you take it, you may not have a sufficiently serious reason if you're about to get in the car and drive uh, somewhere, you know, an hour away, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you are not going on an hour long drive with a drug that makes you drowsy. But if it's close to bedtime or if you're generally hanging out around the house and you know, whatever the case may be, you're not, you know, the drowsiness is go- not going to cause any unfortunate later bad outcomes then you could say, hey, you know what? The symptoms are pretty bad. The drowsiness I can deal with. And you know, it's not going to hurt anybody. Yeah, I got a sufficiently serious reason. I'm going to go ahead and take it. So that's the basic scenario for double effect. Now, that's not the kind of thing we get phone calls about.
0: No. no. I did never really think about that, though. What are some of those phone calls? Like, like right. the really, really complicated ones. Is there anyone recently that you maybe had to tackle and talk through with someone?
1: Oh goodness. Let's take one that again, maybe a lot of people could identify with, particularly if uh, adults who are taking care of elderly or aging parents in this time of COVID, there have been a lot of very sad situations we've been dealing with. But for example, the distinction between euthanasia or assisted suicide, which are immoral, and a legitimate refusal of a treatment Mm. is a classic application of the principle of double effect in end-of-life decision making within Catholic ethics. So you can is the point legitimately decline a therapeutic intervention if the burdens outweigh the benefits, right? The expected burdens, let's say you got to be they're saying, hey, we could put you on a ventilator, or maybe you're already on a ventilator and it is becoming significantly burdensome, and it looks like you're not going to make it in the next few days, probably going to probably going to expire. And there are a series of other considerations that come into play in each specific case. But the long story short is. Could there be a scenario where you say, I want to be taken off the ventilator? And the answer is yes, even though you know, as a result, you may die sooner. Mm. Or could you be put on painkillers that maybe are going to leave you unconscious because of the dose of morphine they may need to put you on or whatever it is, a, a sedative, if it's that bad, could you do that, knowing that it's going to deprive you of consciousness, which is a very important part, typically, of the end of life for many spiritual reasons, and church's tradition has often referenced this. And again, the answer is, yes, you could. If the pain is serious enough, you've got the sufficiently serious reason, you could go ahead and intervene with appropriate pain medication, even if it would deprive you of consciousness or of you know the ability to think clearly, so long as you've gone through that process of saying, hey, were there any better alternatives we could have used? You know, Did we exhaust the other ways we could have dealt with this? And this is the best thing we've got. Yes, we can go ahead and do it even though it's going to have these bad outcomes.
0: End of life definitely is one that a lot of folks, like you said, lately have been discussing. What about, say, pregnancy issues? You know, a woman finds out that she's expecting and it's an ectopic pregnancy. And so, you know, there has to be treatment that's done that I know in the coding, and sometimes even the word abortion is used, even though it's certainly not what that woman has longed to have happen, but that ectopic pregnancy could kill her. What about in that scenario?
1: Absolutely, yeah. That's another actually kind of classic example. If the pregnancy has gotten to the point where essentially intervention is needed now or it's going to be too late in terms of the severe harms that would follow for the mother, you know, typically the concern is of rupture of the tube and consequent infection and death. If the pregnancy hasn't spontaneously miscarried, if the child has not been spontaneously miscarried prior to that point, and the doctors say, really, you can't wait any longer, then yes, you could intervene to essentially remove the section of the tube where the child has improperly implanted. And the the idea is you're intervening on the maternal tissue, on the fallopian tube, that section in which the embryo has become lodged. You can remove that, even though you foresee, unfortunately, that the child is not going to be able to survive or grow any any longer once removed. Mm -hmm. And so you will have the loss of the child's life as a, an outcome, not as what you're deliberately intending here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you're intending is to remove this dangerous section of the tube that's at risk of rupture, and it's the mother's own tube here. So you could do that if you have the sufficiently serious reason. Again, exhausted alternatives, there's an urgency to do it, and you have a proportionate reason in, in the fact that there is some kind of significant threat to the very life of the mother here. Um, which would warrant accepting also the loss of the life of the child that you foresee will follow in that situation. So the church would not consider that, as you pointed out, a direct abortion. That's Mm -hmm. what we would, in moral terms, we talk about direct abortion or direct sterilization when it's the situation that's always immoral. And again, in accordance with the principle of double effect, the idea is that the foreseen but unintended effect is an indirect effect. It's Mm. it's actually Mm -hmm. sometimes called the principle of indirectly voluntary effects. So it's a voluntary action, the outcome of which is indirect and which you do not intend.
0: Mm. That's a good way of putting it. I'm curious, are there ever folks who hear this and think, oh, well, that's just opening up the door. Like that's just a slippery slope. The church is pretty clear on this, right? Like the church is definitively saying, we're not like looking for an out for these certain circumstances. Like this is a a logical and theological way of, of digging into these issues.
1: Correct. Yes, the church is clear about that. In other words, yes, well, first answer to your first question yes, people do worry about a sort of slippery slope, et cetera. But if you understand the principle correctly, and especially when you're doing the kind of work that we do at NCBC every day, you see and struggle with the fact that, guess what? The principle of double effect does not cover every circumstance. Mm. And there are times where you have to say, I'm sorry, but you just can't do that. You know, morally speaking, there's a line there. If it doesn't fit under the criteria for double effect, then we just have to say, sorry, that's not that's not an action. And there's the deep suffering that follows with the realization that, oh, my goodness, well, then what does that mean? In some cases, it may mean that a person's life is on the line and there's not a morally legitimate intervention you can do to prevent the person's death in that Mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So those fine lines are, of course, what, what we struggle with the most. When you do come up against the realization that, well, yeah, some people are concerned that there's a slippery slope, but we experience it actually has limits. It's not the catch-all, hey, as long as you can just say double effect and everything's fine. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> That's not work. That's how it out. works.
0: Yeah. <laughs> has this come up more lately? I mean, the conversation I had with Dr. Perhany was about the COVID-19 vaccine specifically. And the big phrase there is remote material cooperation. Does principle of double effect come into play? in that regard? Because I know there's a lot of conversation around side effects. I mean, at the time that we're recording this, there's lots of conversations around the J&J vaccine causing potential blood clots. And so it's been paused. Is there a way to apply principle of double effect in that conversation?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, in one sense, the principles governing cooperation with evil are an application of the principle of double effect. in a lot of the moral manuals, the manuals of moral theology, in previous centuries, we discuss it in these terms. In other words, you're just applying when you do cooperation with evil, you're taking the principle of double effect and applying it to the immoral actions of others. In other words, instead of saying the bad effect is someone is going to die or, you know, with a cancer treatment, you're going to damage healthy cells with a cancer treatment and the damaging to healthy cells is a bad effect. Instead of saying that, you're saying the bad effect, the thing that we foresee that's bad, is what someone else is going to do. Someone else is going to choose an immoral action. And what I'm doing, what I'm deciding about whether I can do is a participation in something that's gonna help somebody else as an outcome accomplish their immoral aim. And so in that sense, generally speaking, we could say all, you know, true cooperation with evil or participation in evil situations are applications of double effect, but with respect to moral actions chosen by others, Immoral actions, I should say, chosen by others, as opposed to bad physical effects. Furthermore, though, we could say you referenced the side effects of vaccines. And that is absolutely a question also where double effect would apply, just like the simple example I gave with the, you know, Sudafed would be the same for a vaccine. So you could say, I need to be aware of what might be the potential side effects of taking a vaccine. Of course, there are many things we do not know <laughs> about the vaccine. In fact, one of the biggest issues from an informed consent standpoint here is that very fact that many of the side effects that could potentially occur are not known or were not documented. There haven't been enough studies to know what all those might be. But there is a sense in which anything that has been indicated, for example, in the clinical trial data, you, know, you would be able to find lists of the various kinds of side effects. They do mention Certainly the basic side effects that you generally expect with almost any vaccine, like the swelling at the site of injection and those sorts of things. Right. So you could certainly speak to that and say, hey, you know, those are examples of application double effect. You know, I'm going to get this vaccine for a good reason. I want to help protect people. I want to protect myself and bolster my immunity. That's the mentality under which the intention under which I'm doing this directly. I foresee that I might be red and sore for a few days. I might actually not even be able to work for a couple of days, depending on how severe my reactions are. But I accept that. I tolerate that bad effect because of the good that I intend to achieve directly here by getting the vaccine.
0: So I got the Pfizer vaccine a little over two months ago. Um, Mm -hmm. There were some extra doses. I kind of jumped the line to get the extra doses before they went bad. And I had two people reach out to me after I shared it, that one, jumping the line was immoral. Uh, even though they were going to go bad. So I was kind of saving the doses essentially by yeah. getting one. But then two, a more complicated, and it kept me up for a couple nights before I talked to a friend of mine who's worked in bioethics. So we don't know the side effects yet on fertility. And so I might've accidentally sterilized myself, which is immoral. And they're basically saying, I mean, and it was a, not a very good argument that I needed to go to confession because I'd essentially sterilized myself with this vaccination. Oh, okay. Which is not, the case, right? Like it is moral. It's not morally wrong to receive a COVID-19 vaccine.
1: Let's put it this way. <laughs> what your friend said certainly sounds like it was incorrect in that even if, let's just suppose, and of course we don't know, mm-hmm. as I said, right, is right, the right, point, right? Right. could Major there be clarification. <laughs> yeah, right. We don't know. Could there be effects? It's possible. It's still possible. There might be long-term effects for fertility and other long-term effects we're not aware of. Okay. But we don't know. But under that notion when you went to get the vaccine, your understanding of the situation was not, I'm here to get sterilized. Right, right. <laughs> right? Your, your understanding was, I'm here to get a vaccine that's going to protect me mm-hmm. and it's going to protect others. And this is my direct intention. And when it comes to moral actions and culpability, there's also a big piece, which is, uh, I mean, knowledge is always fundamental
0: mm-hmm. for an
1: assessment, for a moral assessment of any action. So if you have no knowledge that this thing is going to cause sterility, you certainly would never be considered morally culpable for an act of sterilization Mm -hmm. because you have no knowledge that this is even something that may happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the point I want to make here is that you can't be responsible for directly carrying out an action that you didn't even know was Mm -hmm. a possibility when you undertook the action. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a potential outcome can't be classified as the object of your act when you go ahead with that action.
0: I told her she was saying something silly. Like that clearly was not, I was like, I don't think you understand the language here. I'm not a bioethicist, but I'm glad to get that clarified on record. So these conversations, you all have them every day at the center. People can call in, you all write articles, you have your own podcasts. You're really digging into this stuff. Have you found a way to do this that is simultaneously clear and also pastoral? Because people are calling the hotline making end of life or beginning of life decisions they're making you know decisions on if you just kind of click through the topics that you guys talk about i mean it's all sorts of stuff how do you approach it i mean from your own background and perspective when you take calls when you're doing things for the center what is your pastoral approach
1: that's a great question i would say the approach i take is generally one of Yeah. First of all, yeah, my emphasis is on what has the church said in educating people, just because many times they just don't know and they're looking for information. And the second thing is I always have to try to gauge the particular person Mm -hmm. and what their situation is like, which is incredibly difficult when you get a phone call from somebody you've never seen before in your life and you probably will never see again. (laughs) You have no clue what's going on in their life. (laughs) So there is a difficult dynamic there from the pastoral side that I've kind of had to navigate over the years, which is, you know, you're essentially like a call service (laughs) and you don't have the advantages that a priest or, you know, a deacon, you know, parish priest, or even a friend would have where they have some knowledge of you and your circumstances. I try to play that as an advantage in saying, look, if things are getting delicate and I'm sensing that this is going to be delicate, then I need to, you know, make clear to the person that this is something you want to discuss further with people in your own circumstance, look, you know, take this with a grain of salt. You know, I'm speaking only to what I know from what you've told me. Mm -hmm. There may be more factors here at work which would, you know, impact the situation. But I can tell you this much, Mm -hmm. you know, I can tell you that there are these clear points and I can tell you that there's this area over here which maybe needs a little bit more refinement, you know, for example, an end of life decision. Those are actually in a certain sense, while they're very challenging many times, of course, because they're involving death, I will say that many times they're also very, perhaps the easiest to navigate pastorally because people are really searching for answers and there's generally a certain willingness also to share some of the additional details of what may be going on clinically mm-hmm. because you say, look, I don't know, and it might be impacted by this. And they say, oh, well, that's, you know, I'll, let me tell you more about it, <laughs> you know, because they're, they're trying to help their parent, they're trying to help. And, mm-hmm. and so they're willing to share information and somebody's life is on the line here. It gets a little tougher in beginning-of-life situations sometimes, and I've had some situations where it's additionally complicated by the fact that you might be talking to somebody who's not directly involved. Like if the priest calls us and says, I've got this situation with a a woman who's pregnant and is asking me this or that, and we'll say, okay, well, this is, I'll explain to you the situation, but I'm not getting from the person directly Mm -hmm. what's happening which can be a plus because maybe the woman is in a difficult situation that she doesn't want to be talking right now, but it can also be a minus because then I can only tell the third party something based on what they told me. And then if they take that back to the other person, missing the rest of the context, it could be a problem Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or it may not be completely accurate. So I'm not, I guess, giving a, a clear across the board answer. I don't have an across the board pastoral, mm-hmm. you know, playbook, as it were. Right. I try to gauge each situation and I try to make sure that the people I'm talking to are aware of the limits of what I'm saying and also, however, clear about any principle points or any way that they need to be thinking about the issue. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's a, a way to put it. You know, it's yeah. like you need to think about it in these terms. I may not be giving you the final answer. But this is the framework. Here's yeah. what the church has said. Here's the framework, the way we work through these things and why we do. And in some cases, I may even give them multiple examples. Like, for example, some issues are unresolved as far as the church's magisterium and are still debated, whether something like embryo adoption or embryo rescue it could be something like even different methods of treating ectopic pregnancy, which you know we, we talked about the simple example before, the classic one is self injecting. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of questions right now in medical practice about uh, something called a saphingostomy and something called uh, the methotrexate, the use of a drug called methotrexate. And those two other techniques are still debated among moral theologians, and the church hasn't clearly come up with, you know, this is the right answer on those. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the question is, do those treatments actually constitute direct abortions? And the reasoning is not as clear as it is with the self injection case that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And so some people will say, actually, no, those are direct abortions if you do that, so you can never do it. And others will say, no, principle of double effect applies. And so if I have somebody who's, you know, faced with that question in their personal situation, then I'll say to them, look, here's the state of the question. This is clearly legitimate. This is what happens in self-injectomy. This is what happens in self-ingostomy. This is what happens with methotrexate. And here's how people reason through those. And I may give them then what I think about it and why, but then I'll say to them, look, this is not a resolved issue. You need to take this to prayerful discernment mm-hmm. and you know really consider the things that I've explained to you, consider the different thinking on the issue, and most of all, pray about it, take it to our Lord and see what the right course of action that he is leading you to. Because it's not my place to say, this is the definitive answer of the church.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you really try to guide folks I got the same kind of an answer from Dr. Brainy. It's, it's a case-by-case okay. case basis, right? Like right. it's <laughs> I wasn't trying to compare the two, but it, you know, it is definitely, a, there's no one-size-fits-all because none of these issues are cookie-cutter. Sure, my experience That's- might be the same as somebody else down the block, but at the end of the day, everything gets very particular because the human person is very particular. Yeah. My last kind of question, I guess, would be, you know, we know what drew you to bioethics. I find like a lot of folks will click around on the website, listen to the podcasts, read different topical things about these issues. How can a person maybe dig in a little more or find out more or start to try to really learn? Because most, most of the time, it's faithful Catholics who are probably calling you guys, folks who are like, okay, this is going to keep me up at night. I really want to dig in it. Common questions of bioethics are coming up on the street and with folks online. Is there a way that folks can start to dig into this more or become more informed, educated Catholics without, you know, calling the hotline every five minutes when they have a question? Yeah,
1: sure, sure. I guess for starters, there's always the catechism in the sense that there actually are several bioethical issues that are addressed in the catechism, like the issue of euthanasia versus legitimate refusal of treatment. Um, In the section on the moral life, the, the principle of double effect itself is actually discussed. In the catechism i think it's in 22 63 and 4 and that's also in the moral life you know basically if you you look at the moral life section of the catechism and kind of skim through or use the index to look for bioethical issues that's one way to do it we have certainly resources on our website obviously it's not the easiest to navigate right now Uh, we're working hopefully on improving that but we have a whole section of resources On our website, by topic where you can actually go to the various topics and click and we've got a bunch of, you know, whether it's topic summaries or links to other writings, question and answers, those sorts of things on a whole variety of topics. So that's uh, another uh, good place to go for basic sense of a lot of these issues. It's hard to say. I guess I've been in the deep dive for so long. (laughs) The the question takes me off guard a little bit. How do I start to get into it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely calling with the big questions, but the website, uh, you know, I find it super helpful. Dr. DiCamillo, thanks so much for taking the time for us.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: You know, one of the questions that I asked every bioethicist that we talked to is what are the pastoral implications of this kind of work? Why is it important to have these conversations in the first place? Why is it important to have a bioethics hotline so that people can call and ask everything from is morphine okay to how do I approach this particular infertility scenario and situation to what do I do when fill in the blank? And every single bioethicist that I talked to, every person that I met who has worked in the field of bioethics has approached the answer in much the same way. This is about helping people understand. And I think sometimes the relationship between faith and science can be so fraught because there's a belief that Catholics don't want to understand. Or there's an understanding that scientists don't want to give. Or there's this weird back and forth, this this belief that science and faith exist in two completely different realms. When in reality, we heard from Dr. Baglow last week, science is trying to answer how, And faith is trying to answer why. And together, those two things can work and get us to the truth. And I think the National Bioethics Center, the National Catholic Bioethics Center, more specifically, is working in this realm in a unique way in the life of the church, answering questions from real people who have real concerns, who really do want to dig into this particular topic, to make an informed decision that is in line with their faith. I think it's really beautiful what they're doing, and I was very appreciative to Dr. DiCamillo for giving us an explanation of this work, of why he likes this work, of how he got into this work, and most importantly, why this work is so necessary. You can go to their website, we have the link down in the show notes, to find lots of articles, podcasts, and other things that they have created. We'd also love it if you'd go to AveMariaPress.com and find all of the stuff that we are creating for Ave Explores Faith and Science, articles, videos, Facebook Live Conversations, more podcasts. We'd also love it if you'd give this podcast a rating and a review to share it with more people so we can continue bringing all of this excellent content to you. We have another conversation later this week on the ethics surrounding the COVID-19 vaccine. We'd love it if you'd subscribe so that you don't miss it. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you soon. This show is a production of the Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.